Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you again for another beautiful day, and we thank you that we can gather together under your word. Lord, I ask that you would speak even through me, that you would open the scriptures, that you would help us think well on these things. And Lord, I ask that as we examine the imminent coming and the rapture of the church, that you would impress upon all of us to flee from this world and the sin that so easily entangles us, and that we would lift our eyes upon you, our King, and the kingdom that's coming, that we'd be convinced of these promises so that we will be consumed for your message, your gospel, and we would contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Lord, we ask that you would accomplish that through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, as you can see, we're going to be looking at the imminent rapture. And I um, initially it was going to be just part one, and that there's going to only be one part, but it just grew on me, and there's going to be two parts to this now. So we'll continue this next week as well. So we're going to be examining the hope, and I'm going to maintain that this has been the hope for all Christians of every generation. And what I want to do is I want to start off talking about the definition of imminence. And I think sometimes to learn a definition, it's good to perhaps examine someone who is taking issue with the definition of imminence. And I want to look at what I would claim is pre-wrath equivocation. Now, in so doing, I'm going to be taking odds with or issue with Ryan Habanaugh in his book. Now, again, I've learned more from Ryan than he'll ever learn from me. He was my pastor. I love him, and I think that he gets 99.9% of everything right. And if you sit under Ryan Habanaugh's teaching, you're going to hear the gospel and you're going to be saved. So this is a small issue, but nonetheless, it's part of God's word, and it's something that we have to define. And let me make the case. This is what Ryan Habanaugh believes imminence is, and it's from his book, The Parable of the Fig Tree, page 154. And he says this. He says, imminence in its simplest definition is an overhanging event that is threatening to arrive. Now, looking at that definition that I have highlighted in red, I think it's a good one. That's exactly what imminence is. In fact, I don't know Latin, but apparently overhanging comes from imineo. And I don't know, it almost sounds like Greek to me, but apparently that's Latin, and it literally means to overhang. Okay, And so he gets the definition exactly right, but now what I'm going to maintain is that he actually goes on to deny the very definition that he's just put forward or claims that we're deviating. That is the pre-trib rapture position. He continues, he says, however, in modern eschatology, and that would be the pre-trib position, the term has morphed to mean that Christ could return for his church at any moment. Well, I'm going to show you in the next slide. That's exactly what overhanging means. He says, those who adhere to this sense of imminence assert that Christ's coming for his church need not be preceded by any signs and thus could occur at any time. And again, I think that's exactly what overhanging means. And so he's accusing us of basically changing and morphing the definition. And what I'm claiming is actually they're changing the definition. So somebody is changing the definition of imminence. Let's put it that way. Here's a helpful hint on the definition of imminence. And it's something that I think we need to add to the discussion is that imminence is an event that could happen at any moment. I should say that it doesn't necessarily have to happen in any certain time frame. Does that make sense? So again, an imminent event, it can happen at any time, but it doesn't have to necessarily happen soon. It could happen soon. It could happen next. It could happen the next moment, but it's not necessary. Okay, And that's the definition. Now, let me take issue with how he, and I have the same definition that Ryan has up here on this slide. Notice again he said overhanging. And he's right. It's an overhanging event. That's what imminence means. But then he goes on and says, well, that it can't mean any moment and it can't mean at any time. Well, yet an overhanging, if something is overhanging, if you have an event that's about to break forth, it is at any time and at any moment. And so what he says is those who adhere to this sense of imminence are basically deviating from the term. But what I'm claiming is, no, that is exactly what the term means. And so at the end of the day, you either believe in imminence or you don't believe in imminence. But you can't change the definition. We can't change the definition of what imminence means. Okay. Now let me talk a little bit more about this this definition. There's certainty and uncertainty with imminence. And certainty has to do with the fact that the event will happen and could happen at any moment. The uncertainty comes into play when we say we don't know the timing of the event. Okay, And I like to think visually, so I've just put a chart together. I want you to think of any moment that you're living, you're living now. Okay, And that's the starting point. We're right now. And now is 
you know, it's going to keep getting later, right? <laughs> if I keep saying now, it's always now, right? That's where we are. We're right now, and we have an overhanging event of the rapture. And what I'm claiming is that an overhanging event could happen next. It could happen the moment after that, or the next moment, or the next moment on infinitum. Okay, it's always overhanging. And it, it could be the next moment, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a hundred years from now. It could be five minutes from now. All right? And so again, imminence, in fact, does mean any moment, and in fact, does mean at any time. Okay, so let me see if I can make some clarity of this debate, if I can clarify it. Because again, if we, we don't understand what we're arguing about, I don't think it's very easy to understand imminence. So the question really with eminence is, This Is there a precursor, or maybe more precisely, are there precursors, plural, that must occur before the rapture of the church? So if you deny imminence, which the pre-wrath ends up doing, you have to say there's at least one precursor, that is something that must take place prior to the rapture. And so that's the only question to ask. Is there a precursor, at least one, that must occur before the rapture of the church? Well, the possible answers are simple. It's twofold. If the answer is yes, there is a precursor, at least one, that must happen before the rapture of the church, the Lord cannot return prior to the precursor. Okay, But if the answer is no, there is not a single precursor that must occur prior to the rapture of the church, then the Lord can return at any moment. And I'll be making the case that it is the latter. The answer to this question is no, and I think we're going to see conclusive evidence of that even starting tonight, and obviously it will culminate uh, next week. But with that, I'm going to start in the batch of evidence, my barrel of evidence, so to speak, that I have. And I'm going to be actually starting in church history. And I want to show you about what a, a bunch of evangelical scholars have said that the church has believed in the apostolic age. And these scholars are claiming that, in fact, during the primitive age of Christianity, when the apostles were still alive, the early church believed in imminence. Okay, that's the case I'm going to lay out before you before we get into the scripture. So let's look at a few of these quotes. Now, this actually is very interesting, but read this carefully with me. It's from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And for those of you that are, Bob's very familiar, and I know Dick has Lagos, and he's real familiar. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament is, it's a multi, multi-volume set. It's probably one of the greatest achievements in understanding the Greek language and scriptures in a comprehensive way that has ever been accomplished in the 20th century. That's how magnificent a work that is. And so there's a lot of respect that goes into the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Now, does that mean it's infallible? Well, certainly not. But listen to what they say in Volume 5, page 865, and the discussion here has to do with the parousia. The writer of the Theological Dictionary says this, "...the primitive Christianity waits for the Jesus who has come already as the one who is still to come." The hope of an imminent coming of the exalted Lord in messianic glory is, however, so much to the fore that in the New Testament the terms parousia are never used for the coming of Christ in the flesh that is the incarnation. So in other words, they could never use when referring to the incarnation the term parousia. Why? Because the doctrine of the imminence of the coming of the Lord, it was so early that you would get the terms confused. You would say, well, now it's, what, what's that gospel writer talking about? Or what's Paul talking about? Is he talking about the incarnation? Or is he talking about the coming of the Lord, the second coming? And so they had to use parousia strictly for the imminent return. Do you see? That's how imminent a return that they believed in. They believed in an imminent return, and therefore they were worried probably about getting it confused with the incarnation. So I thought that was a very powerful point indeed. By the way, I'm indebted to Reynolds Showers again. He has pointed out a lot of these quotes, and this one actually comes from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church regarding the parousia, page 1034. It says this, Primitive Christianity believed the event to be imminent, and this belief has been revived from time to time in the history of the church. Moving on to a man named J. Barton Payne, he wrote a book called The Imminent Appearing of Christ, and on page 102, he said this. He said, The belief in the imminency of the return of Jesus was the uniform hope of the early church. And what he means by early church is the church while the apostles are still alive. Okay? So before they, they die off. 
then going on to a, a man named Lenski, and I know Bob has used him a few times in some of your work and the different epistles. In his book, uh, The Interpretation of St. Paul's First and Second Epistles, page 737, he's commenting on 1 Corinthians 15 about our being changed in the twinkling of an eye. Remember that? Well, listen to what he says here. He says, The simple fact is that Paul did not know when Christ would return. He was in the exact position in which we are. All that he knew and all that we know is that Christ may come at any time. So his claim is that that's the way Paul, that's the condition he found himself in, that Jesus could come at any moment, and that's the condition we find ourselves in. And I'll be making that case from Paul's writings uh, this evening. Now, after the, the apostolic era, we see that the hope doesn't die off. In 96 AD, Barton Payne, in his book, he actually points out that Clement, who was the bishop of Rome, he had a quote that says this. He says, Of a truth, soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished, as the scriptures also bear witness, saying, Speedily will he come and will not tarry. This term, suddenly, what's interesting is I'm going to show you in the New Testament the term suddenly takes on an eschatological nature where it means it can happen at any moment. And I think that that's exactly what Clement is reflecting on. It is, in fact, an imminent thing. We go on to 107 A.D. at Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, Syria. He said, weigh carefully the times. Look for him who is above all time. Friends, why would we look for somebody who can't come? Well, you don't look for somebody who can't come. You look for he who can come and will come soon in, in a time that you don't know. And so, again, this is all pointing towards an imminent return. Now, the Didache is either written between 70 and 90 A.D. or 120 and 180 A.D. There's some debate over that. But in chapter 16, section 1, it says this. It says, Watch for your life's sake. Let not your lamps be quenched, nor your loins unloosed. I think it's a reference to sin. He says, But be ye ready, for ye note not the hour in which our Lord cometh. Okay, again, the idea of not knowing. Why? Well, because he can break forth at any time. Again, the idea of imminence. 90 to 150 A.D., the shepherd of Hermas, chapter 3, sections 9 and 7, says all things around the tower. And by the way, in context, the tower was the church. So you could say all things around the church must be cleansed, lest the master, of course, that's Jesus, come suddenly and find the places about the tower dirty and be displeased. So again, he believed that he could come suddenly, meaning at any moment. Again, the idea of imminence. J. Barton Payne, he summarizes this whole section and he says the Antonicene fathers, by the way, I think that is referring to anyone prior to 325 A.D. because that's when the Council of Nicaea would have been. The Antonicene fathers, in other words, he said, were committed to the concept of the imminence of their Lord's return. Okay, that's his summary. And I, and I think he's exactly right. Now, let me go on to this man named Robert Glaus. In the NIV Dictionary of the Christian Church, page 893, he says the early church holding this premillennial view Look for the imminent return of Christ as witnessed by the writings of Papias, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Methodus, Comedianus, and Lactantius. <laughs> wow, there's a lot of tongue twisters there. But notice, all of these men, friends, are early church fathers who had a lot of pull in the early church, and they believed in the imminent return of Christ. A man named J.L. Neve in A History of Christian Thought, Volume 1, page 43, said, The immediate return of Jesus was anticipated. It was this expectation which held the congregations together. And again, immediate in the sense that it could happen at any moment. There was nothing that had to transpire before. It could happen next. Now, it's all fine and dandy to look at church history, but of course, church history, there's been people that have believed a lot of wayward doctrines in church history and so it, it by no means is inerrant, is it? We know that the church for a while, not all aspects of it, but they um, espoused a geocentric theory that the sun went around the earth, right? Well, scriptures are inerrant, are infallible, and so that's where we want to go next. And I want to start actually in the Gospels, and I want to review Matthew 24 with you. And I think we're going to be amazed to see all of the imminence passages in the Gospel accounts and I want to remind you in Matthew 24, 3, the two questions that the disciples asked. They asked Jesus, number one, when will these things happen? Referring, of course, to the events leading to the destruction of the temple, okay, and, and the things associated with it. And then they asked the question, number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And then they added, 
and the end of the age. Now, the reason why there's only two questions and not three is because they assumed at his coming that would be the end of the age. So it's really only two questions. Are you following me? So what happens then is Jesus ends up, and Bob and I have come to the same conclusion after researching this, that what happens is Jesus answers the second question first. And this is, remember I showed you what's called a chiastic structure? Remember, meticulous Matthew likes to use those. And so there's very good reason to believe he used one here. So what Jesus does is Matthew records him answering the second question first. So Matthew 24, 4 through 35 had to do with the signs within the 70th week. Okay, there's going to be many different things that happen during the 70th week. In fact, many of them are recorded in the book of Revelation. In fact, we see great correlation between Matthew 24. Remember, Jesus lists all those things, the famines, the wars, rumors of wars, many would come in his name. Those all occur in the beginning of birth pangs in the first seals in chapter 6 of Revelation. So again, Jesus lays out the signs that happen within the 70th week, but then he shifts in Matthew 24, 36 through 25, 13 to talk about the start of the 70th week. And when he starts talking about the, the beginning, when the 70th week breaks onto the scene, he says no one knows. And he says it over and over and over, and you can't miss the point. So when does the 70th week come? You don't know. But what happens inside the 70th week? Oh, he's got all sorts of information for that. Okay? And so that's how we see that the this passage being structured. Now with that, let me get into Matthew 24, 36 to 39. And I'm going to go very slowly and I'm going to try to go methodically through this passage because it is so important. Again, Matthew 24, 36 to 39, Jesus starts and he says, now concerning. And in the Greek, remember I had explained that that, pass, or that phrase is peri-day. If you're going to write it in English, it's P-E-R-I-D-E. Okay, and the, the day is post-positive. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is, the way Matthew uses peri-day, the way Paul uses that phrase peri-day, is it ends up making a break in the subject material. Now, it's interesting. It's always connected to the previous material, but there's an emphasis shift. Okay, so for instance, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 7. We know Matthew uses it earlier in Matthew chapter 22. And so what it's like doing is it's like saying, well, now regarding this subject, and it's always related to the previous, but there's a different emphasis. That's the best way I can describe it, okay? So he's doing that. And the reason why that's important, my friends, it's extremely important because it gives us a clue that Jesus is no longer talking about the events within the 70th week. Now he's going to be talking about something different. And remember what preceded it was the parable of the fig tree. And you could know that the season was near when you saw all these things, plural. Well, where did those things occur? Well, within the 70th week. But now notice he says, concerning that day. Okay, and he's talking about a singular, uh, not necessarily a singular day, but he's talking specifically about the beginning, I would say, of the 70th week. Okay, now let me just point something out. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 24, it's interesting. What we're claiming is that everything before Matthew 24, 36 and Matthew 24 is regarding the second coming and 36 on to 25, 13 is about the rapture. Well, look at, for instance, Matthew 24, 22. Notice Jesus says, unless, unless those days had been cut short. And notice he uses the plural, those days. And he says, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And of course, you've all heard, I believe those days are cut short to three and a half years because the scriptures seven times refer to a seven or three and a half year period. Pre-wrath says it's less than three and a half years. Okay, you know that debate. But notice again in verse 22, it says, those days will be cut short. And then if you follow on down to Matthew 24, 29, it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days... Why is he talking about those days? Well, he's referring to the events within the 70th week. And also in Matthew 24:33, Jesus says, so you too, when you see all these things, and again, it's plural. Well, what things? Well, the signs within the 70th week. And he says, you'll in fact know. In fact, he says it just before. He says, you know that summer is near. When you what? You see all these things. Well, what things? Well, the things that happen within the 70th week. But then when he comes down to verse 36, remember he has this peri day, he has an emphasis shift, and now he says, but of that day and hour, 
no one knows. Okay, so there's this huge emphasis or emphasis shift. Now he's talking about the start of the 70th week, in my opinion. And what's interesting is notice this phrase that I have highlighted in red. It says, no one knows. Okay, it's very important because it means the elect doesn't know. So no one can claim that, well, the only people who don't know will be the unregenerate. Okay, so in other words, us regenerate types, we'll kind of know the general time. No, no one knows. In fact, not even the son. Okay, but the father alone. And so that's pretty clear. No one knows. None of us know when he's coming. It's completely unknowable. He says, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father alone. For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so the, the idea here you get is that life was going on during the time of Noah. And it was going on as normal, and then sudden destruction came upon them. And let me ask the question, you've read quite a bit of the book of Revelation yourselves. At the end of the 70th week, when you get to about Revelation 18 and 19, could you say, if you were a person living during that time, that life was just going on as normal? You lost a quarter of the earth to sword, famine, pestilence, and plague. You lose at another time a third of the earth You've had the sun, moon, and stars darkened at least twice. The sun scorched you. It gets really bad, am I right? The nations are gathering against Israel. You've lost a lot of people on the planet, and life is just going on as normal? Well, certainly this is better seen at the beginning of the 70th week because that's when life is going normal, and all of a sudden the 70th week breaks out upon you. Why? Because the church is gone, and the day of the Lord begins. That's how I would understand that passage. Before I forget, let me just back up. Notice this phrase, day and hour. What I want you to realize is that what the pre-wrath and post-trib side is saying is that during the parable of the fig tree, you know how it talks about you can know that summer is near and there's knowledge that you can have based on these things, the evidences of what happens within the 70th week? Well, their claim is that, well, we can know the season, but we can't know the day and the hour. And so they take the day and the hour very literally. We just can't know the 24-hour period, but we can know the general season. What I'm going to show you is that the day and the hour is not used like that. It's used for a much larger span of time. The way day and hour can be used is you won't know the year. You won't know even the years that Jesus is coming. It's com- you'll be completely unaware. Okay. And let me give you ev- evidence of that from a man named Craig Blomberg. Blomberg actually wrote when I was in the, my four-year program a hermeneutics text that's very good. And I disagree with some of his positions, but in this, he really nails it down. Listen to what he says in the New American Commentary regarding the day and the hour. He says, Day and hour are regularly used throughout Scripture for time in general, not just 24-hour or 60-minute periods. Then he cites all those passages. He says, The day especially reflects the Old Testament day of the Lord. Well, that would fit in real nicely because remember our understanding of 1 Thessalonians 5 that the day of the Lord comes like a thief, It comes suddenly. Well, that's exactly the language from Matthew 24 that we're in. And so he goes on. He says it's a stock phrase, I'm right here, for the end of the age. And then he says down here, he says, verses 42 through 44 will use day, time of night, which is watch, and hour interchangeably. Then he says day and hour appear in synonymous parallelism in verse 50. Now, this is very important that I have highlighted read. He says, hence... Christians who claim they can narrow down the time of Christ's return to a generation or a year or even a few days period while still not knowing the literal day or hour remain singularly ill-informed. Okay? (laughs) And that's a polite way of Craig Blomberg to put it. In fact, D.A. Carson says the same thing in his commentary. So the point is when you see the phrase, no one knows the day or the hour, don't fool yourself and you say, well, I don't know the exact day and hour, but I can know the general time. No, we're going to be completely clueless. And there's not one of us that knows. Okay? It's a longer period of time than that. That's how it's used. Okay. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is in this passage in Matthew 24 that we're going to be reading is the taken that's described here. Does it mean taken in judgment or taken in the rapture? In other words, are you saved or are you being judged when you're taken? I'm going to make the case that you're taken in the rapture. And the reason why that's important is because what I'm showing you is that Matthew 24:36 on 
is what's imminent. It, it is the rapture that's being talked about, and that, in fact, is imminent. Okay, and so I'm going to lay out that case before you now. So let me continue then. Matthew 24, 39 through 41, Jesus continues. He says, And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, I want to start with this term took. It actually comes from the Greek term arrow. And it literally means to take away or take up but it has this connotation in several texts of destroy. It's the idea of taking in judgment. And I'm just giving you one example here, but it comes from John 11:48, where the Jews are complaining because everybody's believing in Jesus and he's afraid that the Romans are going to take their power away. And so he says, they say this, they say, if we let him, that is Jesus, go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away, that's, that's arrow, the same word that's used up here, both our place and our nation. And there's several other texts that talk about arrow being taken in judgment. Okay, So first of all, that's a very nice term to use if you want to take somebody in judgment. But now what about this taken? Well, and this taken here, is that the same term and is that also judgment? Well, interestingly enough, that taken is a different Greek word, para lambano, which means to take to oneself. And so the idea here is we see it in John 14.3 when Jesus promises that he will come and bring us to himself. Okay, now what's really interesting about that word too is that it also means to receive instruction. It means other things. But what you're going to see is that even in Luke 17, remember Luke is actually recording the same passage and it's parallel, but he does not use arrow either for taken, the men being taken, but he uses paralambano. So now we have two sources that are saying using paralambano. In other words, what I'm saying is if arrow and paralambano were interchangeable, you would expect perhaps one of the biblical writers to use arrow when we're talking about being taken. But they don't. They're all very consistent in using paralambano for this taken here and this taken. Are you with me? So that gives the idea of consistency that that term probably is a technical term for the Lord taking people to himself. That's, what's, well, that's what I'm saying. So now the next thing I want to point out is this idea of being left. And this is a very big clue too because it comes from the term uh, aphiomi, and aphiomi means to literally abandon with reference to personal objects in Matthew. So you can see this in Matthew 4, 11, 22, and on and on and on. Now, when you read these passages, don't be concerned because like in Matthew 4, 11, the context is Satan is abandoning Jesus, which is certainly a good thing, right? But don't, don't let the, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, sway your mind that this is being left in judgment because the issue is one of abandonment. Okay, so the idea there is they're being abandoned. They're being abandoned by the Lord, and therefore they're being abandoned to judgment. I'm going to show you more evidence of that. What's very interesting is in John 14, 18, and most scholars believe that John chapter 14 in context, that happened two days after Matthew 24 was written, if we're thinking chronologically. Okay, in other words, the events. The events of Matthew 24 transpired two days earlier than the events that transpired in John 14. So we're thinking chronologically now. And listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 18. He said, I will never leave you as orphans. Well, what term is he using? Well, he's using aphiomi. He's using the same one that's used here. And so certainly, if he left his people, it's a form of abandonment in the sense of judgment, is it not? And that's exactly how it's being used in this section here. So those who are left are unbelievers. They're being left for judgment. And what's more, let me show you. This is a quote from an article that Bob and I very much enjoyed by a man named John Hart. As far as eschatology goes, he really does a good job. He has a good handle on it. And he actually is quoting a man named Colin Brown from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. And it was such a great quote, I wanted to quote it to you. He says this. He says, Brown observes the use of aphiomi that we saw used for left in the previous passage, he uses it in Matthew 23:38 for the judgment of the temple. Drawing on this use, he concludes that the use of the word in 24, 40 through 41 served to warn those who are unprepared like in the days of Noah that they will be forsaken in judgment like the temple. So that's exactly how left is being used. It's being forsaken like the temple would be forsaken by the Lord when he leaves it. Okay, So again, that's more evidence that those who are left are being judged and those who are taken, para lambano, are being taken in the rapture. 
Okay. Now let me return to this idea of paralambano. Remember John 14.3, and again, chronologically, this would have happened two days after the events of Matthew 24, more than likely. Jesus said, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again in paralambano, receive you to myself. And notice, friends, that we are going to meet him. It's not that he's coming to be where we are, but rather we're being brought up to where he is, is the idea. And so everybody really agrees that this is a rapture passage. Then he continues, he says that where I am, there you may be also. And that's significant too, because notice where is Jesus going to be? Well, he's going to be preparing a place for us. Okay. And so this is evidence. Now remember friends, Jesus right now is not preparing a place as far as I know here on earth. I'm sure it would be a big news item, <laughs> right? Jesus is somewhere building, you know, but it's not, he's in the heavenly realm and more than likely, perhaps it's the new Jerusalem that he's working on. I don't know. We're not given that data. I'm just, you know, it's conjecture. But the point is, this is more than likely in the heavenly realm because we are going where he is. That's the point. So I think it's, it's a great rapture passage. And again, he uses paralambano, which gives more evidence that what we saw in Matthew 24, 36 on has to do with being taken in the rapture, not in judgment, okay? What's more, Luke 17, 34 through 35, the same section, Luke uses the same words. I tell you, Jesus says, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, paralambano, and the other one will be left. There will be two women grinding. One will be taken, paralambano again, okay? So, of course, we can see that being taken is a good thing. You're being taken in the rapture. So now what we've concluded, the reason why this is so important is because we see that what's imminent in the section that we're, just, we're looking at, Matthew 24, what's imminent is, in fact, the rapture. It is the rapture, therefore, that comes like a thief. So let's reread just this section here, Matthew 24, 36 through 37 and 40 through 41. Again, Jesus said, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Nobody, not the elect, not the unregenerate, nobody. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken in the rapture, right? And one will be left for judgment. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken at the rapture. And one will be left for judgment. Just like the temple was left for destruction in Matthew 23:38. Okay, then he continues. And it's very important because now we're getting into the idea again of imminence. Matthew 24, 42 through 43 He continues, he says, Therefore, be on the alert. I'm going to talk about that phrase in a little bit, a very important one. He says, For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. The idea is he can break out at any time. But he says, But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. So the idea of being ready constantly, why? Because we don't know it's imminent. It can be at any moment. Now, does that mean it has to happen next? No, imminence doesn't mean that. It could be a second from now, and it can be a 100 years from now. We just know it can happen at any time. Notice this term thief. It's very important. This is very interesting, and I've just been discovering this more and more lately. It's interesting. The term thief is really not a concept that we see in the Old Testament. So many scholars have come to the conclusion that where Paul comes up with the term, because he uses it in 1 Thessalonians 5, he is deriving it from the Olivet Discourse, from this section that we're looking at. Well, why is that important? Because it ties 1 Thessalonians 5 to what we're seeing here. Remember, Paul says that the day of the Lord would come like a thief. Okay? Well, the day of the Lord, we know, comes right after the rapture, according to our view. And why that's important is, remember, 1 Thessalonians 5 said that it comes suddenly. We're going to see the term suddenly. It's unexpected. It can come at any moment. Um, We know it comes like birth pangs upon a woman with child. Jesus uses that very term in Matthew 24, 8. And that's, remember he said, all of these things are birth pangs. What was he referring to? He was referring to the very start of the 70th week because those are the things that we saw in Revelation 6, the first four seals. Okay, so we see all this correlation to the beginning of the 70th week in 1 Thessalonians 5. And remember, oh, the other one is they were saying peace and safety. Again, can you say peace and safety, especially after the Lord declares in the second seal in Revelation 6 that he's taken peace from the earth? And we saw time and time again in the Old Testament when peace is withdrawn, it's always due to sword, famine, beasts, and pestilence, right? 
And that was withdrawn by the fourth seal. So no one could be claiming peace and safety after that. So the point is this, friends. If 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is deriving his language from the Olivet Discourse, and I think he is. There's pass, or word after word that he's borrowing right from Matthew 24. Well, then Matthew 24 is talking about the beginning of the 70th week, and that's exactly what Bob and I came to the conclusion on based on this research. So it fits in very nicely. And what's more... 2 Peter 3.10 also says what? That the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Now, very interesting that this term thief, it comes from, and this is again according to the New National Dictionary of New Testament Theology, volume 3, page 377, what Jesus is using here, I should say Matthew is in his gospel, is kleptes, which means thief, but that term thief emphasizes secrecy. You and I have all heard of kleptomaniac, people who can't stop stealing. Well, that's, of course, where it comes from. But that idea of a thief emphasizes the secrecy, okay? Whereas the term lastes, which is a robber, stresses violence. So sure enough, Matthew is using, and so does Luke, the very term, and by the way, so does Paul, the very term that emphasizes the secrecy the kleptes, one who comes in secret. So it's not the emphasis isn't on the violence. And so again, that lends very nicely to the idea of imminence because you don't know when he's coming. If you knew when the thief was coming, I have a, <laughs> I'm a gun guy. I have a, I mean, I would, if I knew when the criminal was coming, I'd have 911 in the phone and I have my pistol out and I'd probably have a tuna sandwich, right? <laughs> you know, it'd be very simple. But the problem is you don't know when those rascals are coming. So that's the idea that we're seeing here. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You don't like tuna, right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, now what I want to do is show you, it's very interesting, Mark 13 um, in 34 to 37, this is parallel to the Matthew section that we've been looking at, but what's interesting is Mark is actually using a different story to relate the same thing. So more than likely when Jesus was teaching this, he probably, he probably taught many parables about this and Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew chose to focus on one, whereas Mark focused on another. But you're going to see the same principles unfold, the idea of imminency, that the rapture comes like a thief. So listen to what Mark says in Mark 13, 34 through 37. He says, It is like a man, that is the coming of the Lord. Jesus says, It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. Therefore... Be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. What I want you to take notice of is, notice where I have it underlined. He says, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or morning, that is a way of saying it can happen at any time of the day. And if it can happen at any time of the day, what Jesus is saying is, you really don't know. It can happen at any time. It's imminent. And so therefore, you must, in fact, be ready. Now, the other thing I want to point out is this term, suddenly. It comes from ex And this term is very important because, as you're going to see here, ex is pertaining, according to Lonida, the Greek lexicon, to an extremely short period of time between a previous state or event and a subsequent state or event, or suddenly, at once, immediately. And they go on to say this, in a number of contexts, there is the implication of unexpectedness. And, and that would be exactly what we're reading about in Mark 13. Why is there this unexpectedness? Because you can't know. Friends, the pre-wrath is saying that the Lord cannot come until the abomination of desolation occurs. And remember, where are they getting that? From Second Thessalonians 2. And remember, I showed you that they're misreading that. So they're basing their evidence on a faulty understanding of 2 Thessalonians 2, and they're saying, well, the man of lawlessness must come first. Well, is that what these texts are saying? It doesn't seem to be. What I would conclude if I was a pre-rather is that the Lord can't come this week because I don't think that the Antichrist is going to be performing the abomination that causes desolation anytime soon. And so you don't have to worry. And so he can't come. He can't come like a thief to them. They will, in fact, have very good warning. By the way, I want to show you how this suddenly is used. It's used five times in the New Testament. I'm showing you three of its usages. And the reason I'm showing you these is to show you that suddenly means it comes without precursor, certainly without the events of the Antichrist being set up in the temple or the sun, moon, and stars. The use of um, exiphnes is always suddenly with no warning. Luke 2.13, remember in context there that 
you have the shepherds out in the field. This is a lot of the Christmas cards have this on, right? We, we have this and it says, uh, and suddenly, that's exiphnes, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And they go on to say, glory to God in the highest and peace to men on earth of whom or to whom God is well pleased. It's very important, that last part, because it's not to all men, it's to those whom God is pleased with. Very interesting. It's a difference between the King James and the New American Standard. The King James says to all men, well, that's not right. And you get your doctrine of election right if you get the, the Greek right. But anyway, that's another story. But the whole point is suddenly indicates that it comes without warning. There was no precursor to the heavenly host breaking. Okay, It just came suddenly. The same word is used in the conversion story of Saul on the way to Damascus, Acts 9.3, says, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly, again, exiphnes, a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, was there a precursor? Did Paul have an inkling that, in fact, this would be happening? No. It just broke upon him, and he had nothing to do with it. It was completely God's doing. And again, that's exactly how the coming of the Lord will be. It'll be suddenly in that sense. There'll be no precursor. And so that's how the term is used. Now, you've seen three of the five usages of that term in the New Testament, okay? And again, that's how it, it, it ends up being something sudden with no precursor. Now, what we're exhorted to do then is we must watch. And I'm going to show you this term watch comes from gregareo, which means to stay awake, to be continuously ready, have alertness to learn, to be alert, to be watchful, to be vigilant. What this means in the Christian context is that you and I are to be watching in that we're living for the king and his kingdom, not what's here on earth. We are, as it says in Colossians 3, 2, to set our things, our mind on the things above right? Not in the things below. And so in order to be ready, we are to be about the Lord's business, preaching the gospel, being about the great commission in Matthew 28, contending earnestly for the saints or the faith once for all handed down to the saints. You and I are to be sitting ourselves under the means of grace that we see in Acts 2.42 so that you and I, in fact, are ready in the sense that we're not living for this world. We're not living in sin. Why? Because we want to please our master when he comes. And so now let's look at this term, Gregoreo, in Matthew 24, 42, 43. Jesus, again, therefore, be on alert. And that's the term he's using. And he's saying it so that you will be ready, and therefore you are focused on the things above. He says, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. If the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert. Okay, very simple. Now, uh, let me just say this real quickly. Again, in the pre-wrath position, you have the abomination of co- that causes desolation at the midpoint. Well, now you know it's within three and a half years. Okay, So technically, you have a 30% chance of getting the year right, at least. And remember I talked about no one knows the day or the hour? The day or the hour means you don't even know the season. You don't know the year. Okay, Well, they'd have a 30% chance of knowing the year, wouldn't they? And why would you be on alert if you know that the thief can't come? He can't come tonight. Jesus cannot come tonight under their view. And same with a post-trib position. In fact, the post-trib position, you can count from the abomination that causes desolation three and a half years, you know exactly when Jesus is coming. Okay? So again, why would you be on alert? You know exactly when the thief is coming. Matthew 25, 13, remember this is in context with the discussion of the, the virgins, the ten virgins. And you have the bridegroom, which is Christ, and he's gone, and they don't know when he's going to come back, so they have to be prepared, even if he tarries. Again, the idea, we don't know. So Jesus commands, it's an imperative, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Would you do that if you know that Jesus can't come until the abomination that causes desolation? Why would you be on alert? 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 6, Paul writes, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief. And again, he's using kleptase, the very term that Matthew and Luke use in their Gospels, talking about the rapture coming like a thief. So it comes like a thief in the night. So then let us not sleep as others do. And by the way, sleep isn't in reference to physical sleep, but it's the opposite of gregareo. It's the opposite of being prepared for living for the king and the kingdom being asleep means living for this this world. It's being consumed for the things of this life where, you know what, I'm now really not so sure the Lord is coming. I'm not so sure about all those promises. And, you know, maybe that pornography isn't so bad, right? Because after all, can I really believe that he's coming? And I'm going to spend all my time living for that when I could live it up now. And it's after all, it's, I'm, I'm just, that's how people start to think. That's a real life scenario, Okay. 
But what we do is, you and I as Christians are said, we're called to say, I'm living for the king and his kingdom. I'm going to forsake everything else. I want to live for that. Nothing in this world matters because he's coming. Okay? That's practical, I think, and that's a practical application of this passage. But let us be alert, Jesus says, or I'm sorry, Paul says, and, and sober. And again, that's the very same term that Jesus or Matthew uses here and here. And so again, you see the correlation between Thessalonians and Matthew. So therefore, Matthew and Paul. So again, would you be on alert? Be on alert, be on alert, be on alert. Would you do that if you know that the thief can't come? Well, certainly you wouldn't, okay? Again, watching in imminence. Now, what I'm going to show you next, and by the way, on this slide, I want to show you this idea of gregareo, being watchful, applies to imminence even in non-eschatological context. In other words, contexts that have nothing to do with the return of the Lord. It's still used for imminence. Let me show you why. Remember, Jesus here is in the Garden of Gethsemane, with his disciples, Matthew 26, 38, and 45. Listen to what he said. It says, Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. There's Gregoreo with me. And now listen to verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. So here the Lord's arrest was imminent. So even in a non-eschatological context, in other words, it has nothing to do with the end, that has to do with Jesus being arrested, being betrayed by Judas and sent to the cross, it's still, we find itself uh, dealing with imminence. That's why he wanted them to be alert, spiritually speaking. Okay, And we see the same thing, I think, in even uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Gregoreo, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. The idea there is, you and I, again, have to be prepared because it's imminent. The attack of the enemy is always imminent. Okay, so even in non-eschatological context, gregoreo is often used with things that can happen to us imminently. Okay, so again, it's, it's very imminent uh, prevalent, I would say. Uh, now, let me show you again. I'm going to show you Mark 13 one more time. I just want you to see how often uh, this phrase is used, gregoreo, uh, stay on alert. Jesus, again, says, it is like a man, that is the coming a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to gregareo, to stay on alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning in case he should come suddenly. Again, suddenly means at any time and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So look at just in these passages how it's used. And again, friends, would you want to be on alert if you knew that the thief couldn't come? Well, and of course, the answer is no. And so it lends itself again very nicely to the pre-trib position. I think it's very difficult for the pre-wrath, post-trib, mid-trib, those positions to answer because to them, the thief can't come. He can't come tonight and he probably can't come this week, I would imagine. And so they're free to go. They don't have to worry about the Lord coming. Now, I'm going to talk about Paul and his understanding of imminence, and I'm not going to be able to get through all of it, and we'll pick it up next week again. But let me start in in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, and 7. And in verse 4, Paul said this. He said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And so now the outflow of that grace is found in verse 7. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this awaiting eagerly. It comes from apic decamai, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but it's in the present tense. And the present tense always has to do with ongoing action or continuous action, or typically has to do with that. So the idea is they are eagerly awaiting in the sense that they're continuously, presently ongoing, in process of waiting the arrival. Well, how could you do that for somebody you know that can't come? If there has to be a precursor to the event, you certainly are not going to be doing that kind of eagerly awaiting. Now, listen to what Gordon Fee says about this passage, about 1 Corinthians 1.7 in the New International Commentary of the New Testament. He says, Salvation for Paul was primarily an eschatological reality, begun with Christ's coming and to be consummated by his imminent return. So again, Gordon Fee has written numerous texts on hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation. I think he's a really gifted scholar. Bob has pointed me out to his commentary here on 1 Corinthians, and I'm just blown away by this guy's knowledge. And he says again, yes, there's this idea of the imminent return 
of Christ. Now, let me talk about apodecami from the Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament. Remember, apodecami is the term used here, wait eagerly. What's interesting is, yes, it means wait eagerly, but it's also synonymous, meaning it means the same thing that prosdecami used. And the reason why I mention that is because prosdecami, if that's equal to apodecami, prosdecami is also used in Luke 2.25 and 26, referring to Simeon. Remember righteous Simeon? Well, it says, And this man was righteous and devout, looking, prosdecami, for the consolation of Israel. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is an extremely important passage. Why? Because it was revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And so every single day he woke up, he wondered if this was the day. He knew it would come. He didn't know what day. It was imminent. It could break forth at any time. But he knew it would come. He knew he wouldn't die. He had that guarantee from the Holy Spirit. And so he knew it would come. And what's more, it's, remember, these terms are synonymous. You can use them interchangeably. It again is in the present tense, meaning he was under the ongoing expectation that one day he woke up, he would be seeing the Messiah that day. And we have the same expectation prevalent here. Well, can you do that if first there's a precursor that must occur before the Lord comes? Well, certainly not. Okay. Now, the same term, prosdecami, is actually used in Titus 2, 11 through 13. It's in verse 13 here where Paul says this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking, prosdecami, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Again, in the present tense, indicating ongoing, continuous looking. In fact, Daniel Wallace, in his book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, page 514, he says this, the present tense's portrayal of an event focuses on its development or progress and sees the occurrence in regard to its internal makeup without beginning or end in view. The way I like to think about it is the present tense is like being in the football play, okay? And let's say you're the halfback and you're following your blockers. You can't see the whole field, but that's the present tense. The perfect tense would be like something like um, you're in the Goodyear blimp and you're looking down you see the whole field. It's finished. It's done, right? But present tense, it's ongoing. You're in it. And so that's the idea that's present here. So he goes on, he says, it is sometimes called progressive. It basically represents an activity as in process or in progress. So the idea is they are in the process of looking. Why would you be in the process of looking for something that cannot happen? It's irrational. And friends, it's not good to be irrational. Okay? Okay, so it's irrational to be looking for something that cannot happen. And that's why all these scholars are saying, yes, they believed in the imminent return of Christ. And therefore, so should we. It is the inerrant word of God. Okay, again, I want to just point out one more of Paul here. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, very interesting. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed. And then he says, Maranatha. Now, what's very interesting is Leon Morris, in his book, The First Epistle to the Corinthians, page 240, he points out that that term in Aramaic, mar means Lord, anna means our, and the means come. So it's um, our Lord come. Well, what's interesting is this phrase ends up being used as a code word for the expectation of the church. It became their buzzword because they so expected their Lord to come at any moment. And that's exactly the point that Reynolds Showers makes when he talks about a scholar named Charles Ellicott. He says, in light of this meaning, that it means our Lord come, he says, Charles Ellicott declared that Maranatha was practically equivalent to the expression the Lord is at hand in Philippians 4, 5. And we're going to be actually looking at that passage next week. Okay, So he says it's identical really to that. The Lord is at hand, meaning he can come at any time. right? And so Maranatha even took that understanding. Listen to what this man William Barclay said in his commentary, The Letters to the Corinthians. He said, It is strange to meet with an Aramaic phrase, that is Maranatha, in a Greek letter to a Greek church. The explanation is that that phrase had become a watchword and a password. It summed up the vital hope of the early church. And so again, friends, I think it was used as a buzzword to say our Lord's coming and we don't know when he's coming soon. And so again, it shows you that they believed, in fact, in the doctrine of imminence. This is what A.T. Robertson, by the way, A.T. Robertson was the most renowned evangelical Greek scholar 
on the Greek New Testament in the 20th century. Bob has seen him quoted. You've probably read him hundreds of times, haven't you? Him and this man named Alfred Plummer, in their critical and exegetical commentary on the first epistle to the Corinthians, said this, it means that at any moment that is the loss, they may have to answer for their shortcomings. Well, at any moment, remember, that was the definition that the pre-wrath proponents were saying is not appropriate and has no place in the doctrine of imminence. But yet that's exactly what that word is saying, according to A.T. Robertson. It means at any moment. At any moment, the unbelievers are going to have to answer why they don't love Jesus. And that only occurs if you have a rapture that can occur and therefore the day of the Lord that can occur at any moment. Um, Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is not in heaven, from which also we eagerly await. Again, apodecami, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's in the present tense, indicating this eager expectation that is ongoing. Why would you do that if he can't come? If, the abomina- if you believe that the abomination that causes desolation must happen first, why would you be in the process of eagerly waiting? It's foolish. I would just wait till I saw that, then I would start waiting if I believed in that scheme. F.F. Bruce said about this passage, he said, but they did eagerly wait for their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. This expectation was a constant element in the primitive apostolic preaching. The Thessalonian converts were taught to wait for the Son of God to come from heaven who rescues his people from the coming judgment. That's exactly what's being stated here in Philippians. So let me give you a preliminary summary. I'm going to give you another one next week. Let's draw a few conclusions. Remember in the pre-wrath scheme, the rapture is preceded by events foretold in Revelation 6, 1 through 17. And specifically, I want to talk about two precursors that would be very identifiable. Uh, identifiable, if that's a word. I probably made a word up, but <laughs> got me some slack, all right? Uh, here, the first one would be the abomination that causes desolation. And the second one that you could identify would be the sun, moon, and stars that occur at the sixth seal. Now, remember, these things must happen before the rapture. Now, if you don't see these things, how many have seen the sun, moon, and stars being darkened lately? I have not. And therefore, Jesus cannot come in their scheme. Now, is that what the biblical data has reflected thus far? I don't think it has. Certainly, the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple, that would be a very noticeable event. And yet, we haven't seen that. Okay. Now, let me point out something else again. And I've, I've maybe pointed this out earlier, but I want to hit it again and again. Matthew twenty four twenty nine. remember Jesus says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Now, remember, the sun, moon, and stars, according to the pre-wrath scheme, they're darkened at the sixth seal. Well, according to Van Campen and Marv Rosenthal, the sixth seal is part of the great tribulation. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the sun will be darkened. This sun, moon, and stars that are darkened here is after the tribulation. So it doesn't fit very nicely, does it? Okay. And so again, what we're claiming here is that this Matthew 24, 29 is talking about the second coming. Yes, there will be signs. It's within the 70th week. And so that sun, moon, and stars that will be darkened is just like the sun, moon, and stars being darkened in Joel chapter 3 when the nations are being gathered against Jerusalem, right? And they're in the valley of decision, the valley of Hakarutz, where you have the irrevocable judgment. That happens, remember, and those nations are gathered when? At the sixth bowl, which happens at the end of the 70th week. So again, to me, it just doesn't work out for the pre-wrath scheme. What about the post-trib scheme? The rapture would be preceded by the events foretold in Revelation 6 all the way through 1910. Okay, so you would have all these events. And even if you're not a believer, you know there are non-believers that know the Bible, Bob's talked about one, Rudolf Boltmann is a great example. He doesn't believe anything that he knows exactly. He's very good with the Bible. He just doesn't believe a word of it. But he can tell you exactly what it means. Okay, there's people that know that, and it's very possible that they would know exactly. But again, friends, no one knows the day or the hour. No one. Not the regenerate, not the unregenerate. And yet you would have all these precursors. Again, you'd have the abomination of desolation. You would have the sun, moon, and stars numerous times, but you'd also have the nations gathering against Israel. Well, you'd have all these precursors. Is that what we've seen in the data tonight? No. It's, it, there is no precursor because he can come and they are, in fact, the believers are expecting him imminently, eagerly, presently in Paul's epistles. So the conclusion is this. In both the pre-wrath and post-tribulational schemes, Jesus cannot come until certain events transpire. Is that what the biblical data suggests? That's the question I think we have to answer, and I don't think it does. 
So now next week what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish off some of the passages that talk about imminence, and then I'm going to focus in on Revelation 3, 10, and 11. And I'm going to be taking issue with the, both the post-trib and the pre-wrath understanding of Revelation 3.10 that guarantees our being kept from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And so we're going to be focusing in on that passage, and I'm excited to do that. And it's going to be nice. We're going to spend a lot of time on that one passage. I think we can really delve into it. So that's for next time, and I thank you for listening. To, I know I threw a lot of technical things at you and probably things that aren't real fun to listen to, but thanks for listening, and I'm opening it up for questions. Yeah, James. I, I thought oh, I'm of sorry, an illustration. Bob. Suppose somebody said to you, I'm going to stop over someday and borrow a ladder from you. Yeah. But I'll pro- I promise you I'll call before I leave home to come and get the ladder. Yeah. Well, what would you be waiting for, a phone call or does the guy just show up? The call. The call. Exactly. Okay, so if Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm going to come suddenly, but not until after... The, the abomination of desolation and the signs of the sun, moon, and stars. Right. You're not waiting for Jesus. You're waiting for those signs. Exactly. All yeah, right. that's very rational. Matthew 24:36, where it says, But at that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Did the Son not know then because in his humanity that was something he had set aside? Would we say that he does not know today? Yeah, this is directly as a result of his hypostatic union. Now, remember, it is, that means Jesus being both fully God and fully man simultaneous, right? So, for instance, we can see, remember when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and we can see both his humanity and his deity there, because remember, he's asleep, and he's asleep because he's genuinely human, and he's genuinely tired. But that same Jesus can also get up and calm the seas, and so in this incarnation, he doesn't lose his divine attributes, but he doesn't always exercise his divine attributes. So he lays aside the divine prerogative to always use his divine attributes, if you, if you see what I'm saying. So here's where I would draw the line is that we're not saying, and I don't think the scriptures are claiming that he lost his divine attributes. He was fully God in every way. But that does not mean he always uses his divine attributes. He has the prerogative to use them and not use them. The example that I've used, and I don't... It's funny, I'm caught a little off guard, so I don't know if I like this analogy that much or not, but let me just use it. The analogy would be, think about Carl Lewis, who used to be the fastest man in the world. I'm behind the times, so I'm still back in the Carl Lewis era. <laughs> think about if he went to a race with his son and he put on a gunny sack. He self-imposed that limitation upon himself and he's not probably any faster than any of the other fathers, but at any time he can take the gunny sack off and he can sprint like mad, right? <laughs> Which was fun to watch. So the point being is it's a self-imposed limitation and it's his divine prerogative, so he has not lost any of his attributes. Hey, Bob, do you want to add to that? You'd have to legitimately say there's somewhat of a mystery to this yeah, because as a member of the Trinity sharing the divine essence, he would share knowledge. Yeah. So how can you decide not to know something unless you already knew it ahead of time and decided not to know it anymore? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't think we can explain this. Yeah. Okay? (laughs) And it's interesting because in John, you remember um, Peter says to him, Lord, you know all things. And so there we have a clear declaration of his omniscience. And so again, the best thing, like Bob said, it's a mystery. And Now remember, a mystery is not a contradiction. A mystery is something that we just can't, we don't have all the data yet. And so it's not a contradiction, it's just, yeah. And again, the, it's, I'm sorry, it's related to the hypostatic union. That is something that we've never seen, and we don't fully understand all the yeah, elements there. So, yeah. Eric, wondering yeah. if you could apply Philippians 2, like verse 5, where it talks about have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although uh-huh. he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being in the likeness of men. Yeah. You know, just like you were saying, he laid aside his divinity. Yeah. Now, there's where I think we want to be careful. And just, and I I like what you're saying, it's just, what's interesting is this is is what's called the kenosis discussion, and it has to do with emptying. Okay. What's interesting is in Philippians 2, Remember, Paul is advocating that we ought to humble ourselves 
In other words, empty ourselves as Christ emptied him, his self. Well, if you and I empty ourselves, in other words, we humble ourselves, are we losing our humanity? No, we're just being humble humans. The same thing applies to Jesus in this passage. It's not that he's devoiding himself or getting rid of his divine attributes, but rather it's the divine prerogative to always use them. He's the Lord of glory, and he could smite us all and not go to the cross, yet he subjected himself to us. And so it's that kind of emptying. So in context, so in other words, just as you and I can humble ourselves and we're fully human, he can humble himself and he's still fully God. Um, Yeah. 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 And so that's, yeah. Eric, could you look at uh, Noah when he went into the ark with his family? Could you look at that as a type of an Old Testament rapture? Yeah, that's very well said. It is. And it's used, uh, many scholars see it that way. The destruction did not occur until the righteous ones are taken out. In fact, the same thing can be said of Lot. Now, what, what some people wrangle about is, well, the ark is technically there. You know what I mean? In other words, it's present while the world is being flooded. But the imagery there is one of protection. They're completely protected and separated from the elements that destroy and kill. And so I think it's a perfect example of the righteous being taken from the, the dangerous situation. And in fact, I'm going to show you a parallel between Second Peter 2.9 and Revelation 3.10 the next time we're together. And I'll be talking about being kept from um, the hour. So we're actually going to make a little bit of a correlation with that next week. So, yeah, it's a great question. Thanks. Oh, yeah, Brian. When we were looking at Matthew 24, 36, 37, yeah. the, I can't remember the Greek words there, but the taken, rapture, and then the left, the yeah. judgment. Okay, the, the one or ones that are left for the judgment, that's not an absolute judgment because... In God's providence, they may still yet... That's a very good point. Yeah, because in other words, what's breaking upon them would be the 70th week. And whether or not they end up repenting during the 70th week or not, we don't know. But the, the point is this, that the judgment is so severe during the 70th week that many, many, many are going to perish. And so it is God's eschatological judgment, and they will, in fact, go through that, and many will die, and life is uncertain and all those things. The guarantee, though, is that if you're with the Lord, para lambano, you're received to him, and you're spared all these things. And, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about again next week, that we're spared from the hour of trial. But you're right. Technically, there's still a chance for those to come to repentance and faith, even during the 70th week. And, yeah, that would not be precluded per se. But I don't think Jesus is trying to be that particular He's just trying to say, you know, there's going to be those saved and there's going to be those that are judged, yeah. You know, I was really worried this evening. I had a lot of slides again, and I apologize. I I always want to cut it to about 17 so I don't have to talk so fast, but they just grow on you, you know. There's just so much data, and I want to... (laughs) um, So anyway, I'll try to work on that. (laughs) Well, with that, does anybody else have anything else? Well, thank you, and I look forward to seeing you. Remember, next week then will be our last week for just... We'll be taking a week off after that. And uh, then when we come back from that time, then we'll be getting into the book of Revelation and its structure. But next Tuesday, we'll be back here, 7 o'clock.